Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Two questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? And the second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening to Restoring the Soul. On today's podcast, our host, Michael John Cusick, conducts a fascinating discussion based on John 15, 1 through 17. Now, if you're not familiar with the reference, we're sure that the first few words of chapter 15 will be all you'll need to remember. Jesus is speaking to his disciples towards the close of his earthly ministry and says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Now, knowing that Jesus was speaking to an agrarian culture, his disciples would not have missed the importance of the metaphor, especially a society that held wine in such high regard. So what can we learn today about the important connection Jesus was making between himself, his father, and the disciples in the relationship to a vineyard? On today's podcast, Michael will be speaking with Josh Hillman. Josh is a certified sommelier with a passion for showing others the beauty of wine. He has worked with some of the greatest sommeliers in Denver and now is the wine director for Pearl Wine Company. His passion is to help others find the most possible pleasure from wine. Now this is an episode you won't soon forget and hope you'll share it with friends everywhere. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the program. It is I, Michael, on the fourth floor of the Academy Center overlooking Eeny Meeny Sushi, as well as old Chicago pizza. And recently somebody said, that's mildly funny when you do that introduction, but why do you do that? Are you doing a commercial for Eeny Meeny Sushi? No. Here's the reality. We are sitting in this studio overlooking a pretty spectacular view of the front range of Colorado. Uh, I have an almost unobstructed view where if I look to the right, I can see the Flatiron Mountains in Boulder, about 35 miles northwest. And if I look to the left, um, I can't quite see Pikes Peak and Colorado Springs, but it's a pretty spectacular view. So to say that we're overlooking Eeny Meeny Sushi is, how shall I say it, uh, irony. It's an ironic statement, and I'll, I'll probably continue to say it. Uh, until I get bored of it or until listeners simply outvote me. But hey, I am 
beyond excited today to be in the studio with a dear, dear, an old friend. I have known him most of his life, but please say hello to Josh Hillman. Josh, welcome. Thanks so much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. We've talked about this for a while. We're going to be talking about wine and wine in the context of John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. Josh has worked as a sommelier. He is trained as a sommelier. He has passed a test as a sommelier. And no, that is not a person that lives in Somalia. I'm going to have to have him define this. But he's a professional wine person and currently works in the wine industry, though not on the the floor of a restaurant anymore. And we had a conversation um, a while back, actually at his wedding reception, and I said, hey, would you come on the podcast and talk about wine as it relates to this passage in John 15? Um, One of the reasons why I love Josh is um, he has grown up and lived in four different countries as a third culture kid and as an expat, and he has traveled extensively. He's a guy that speaks a lot of different languages and has a lot of different passions, and you're an Enneagram 4, right? 100% Enneagram 4. So you are an individualist. Um, Let's just jump right in. John chapter 15, and and, and for listeners ahead of time, this is not going to be exegesis. This is not going to be teaching on John 15. This is going to be using John 15, just the first few verses, as a springboard to hear a professional wine person that as part of their training needs to learn all about vineyards and vines and the making of wine, uh, and how that might give us some insight into what Jesus was talking about. So here's the context of John 15. There's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. His first sermon is read in uh, Luke chapter 4, quoting Isaiah 61. It says he was full of the Holy Spirit. He leaves the desert where he was tempted for 40 days. He walks into a temple, and he kicks off the beginning of his ministry. And uh, those words are basically... The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up broken hearts, set captives free. Uh, all of Isaiah 61. He ends his ministry three years later by having a meal. And that meal is the Last Supper. It's Holy Thursday before Good Friday. And the story says that uh, at the end of the meal, he gets up with the disciples, actually after having washed their feet, and he quickly departs and he goes out And it picks up here, John 15. He says to the disciples, um, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And the reason why I think it's important to hear about uh, wine and vines is because as long as I've been a Christian, I've read this verse, and so many like them, and it has led me to this conclusion that, wow, I'd better bear fruit, and if I don't bear a lot of fruit, I'm going to be cut off, and I was never really sure what that meant, but then I, I read a book a long time ago by Bruce Wilkinson, of all people. You might know that name from The Prayer of Jabez, and he wrote a little book called The Secrets of the Vine, and in there, he points out that The word for cut off is the Greek word aero, A-I-R-O, and it actually means to lift up. It's more commonly used to lift up. So that passage could be that he lifts up every branch that bears no fruit. 
And um, although it can mean cut off, that the most logical definition is lift up. So with all of that being said, Josh, um, let's start with this. Um, How did you get into wine? And what in the world led you to be a sommelier? And what is a sommelier? Well, awesome. Uh, So what led me to get into wine was... uh I started into it while I was working at a restaurant in Boulder called uh, Bramble and Hare. There's a sommelier there by the name of Dev Ranjan, and he was honestly one of the most meticulous, robotic, working individuals I've ever met in my life. Uh, but he was on time every day, and he was there before I was, and then he left after me, and he, he never got it wrong with a guest. He was always, always the guy who had the right bottle and always knew what to say when things went really bad. And so I saw him do that and saw that meticulousness and loved that idea and loved wine and got really excited about it. But it's been about six or seven years uh, just working in coffee instead. Uh, Had a really great position that I loved. And luckily from that, I learned how to taste because it's a whole lot harder to taste coffee than it is wine, I believe. And so let me just interrupt. When you were working in coffee, you weren't just like a guy that got a job at Starbucks. As a four, you went all in. You even won some competitions, right? On like how Mm -hmm. to put foam on the top. Talk about that. So I I fell in love with it. And with coffee, you can get as meticulous as you want. Uh, And so I went for the greatest store in town. And I was the manager of the store I was working out after one year at 19. And then so this other store hired me and I was the lowest of the low and had to relearn how to fold towels how to dress everything and so they put me through the ringer on getting things right and doing things well and then they helped train me and we were really big into latte art that uh very very fun kind of mixture of espresso and milk that we just really obsess over way too much what's what's the coolest latte art you've created well let me guess it was the pieta uh, (laughs) jesus on mary's lap of it was a it was a pieta in foam of what is in the uh, Vatican treasures in the Sistine Chapel. Was that it? You know, it was really my take on it. I took a little <laughs> difference, but that was it. <laughs> no, what was, the, what was the coolest foam latte art you did? Really the coolest was like, uh, I had a, it was, it was the consistency. It was being able to pour like a, a complex design. We call it like a four-tiered tulip. And so it's with a, a slow base. <laughs> And what that means is that you take a really long time to do this really big line on the bottom, and then you have to get meticulous towards the top. And so it's kind of just a flex on everyone of, hey, these are all my skills in one thing. And just because you can, and it's beautiful. Exactly. Which is one of the things I I love about you. So what do you love about wine that led to this path that you're going to unpack? So wine led me in because, I mean, there's a huge part where it's an intoxicant and it makes you happy. And then... Once I got over that part, it was realizing that there's a history behind this, that there's a people, there's a culture, there's someone who wanted to make this happen, who believed that there was something in his vineyard, in his vines, that his grandfather maybe planted, or maybe he planted himself, but he believed it was, it was worth putting in the time, the effort to create something beautiful. And so in being able to learn those stories and then share those, I get to kind of live out my best of showing people beautiful things. That is, that's so cool. So give me an example. Uh, maybe I can pick a country, something outside of the U.S., so it'll seem a little more exotic, of, of somebody wanting to create something beautiful with their land and their vines that maybe goes back a while. Yeah, so uh, I think a place in Spain right now that's really, this is happening a lot, is called uh, Sierra de Salamanca. And so their grapes aren't popular. 
and but they are big and they're really dark and so for years and years they've kind of just sold their grapes to the local co-op and it didn't matter and so right now we're seeing young kids come up and so one of my favorites is this guy named Shershi and he makes this grape called Rufette and it's really weird and it's not a grape for everyone but he with no market nobody cares about this grape he took his parents grape took the winery put all the money into cleaning it up trying to get it right and then started creating these wines and they're beautiful and they provide like a a whole nother perspective on Spain it's wines we never had before because they were just being blended into something that would go to a supermarket and he saw in it and saw in his vines because his family had never ever done anything in the vineyard that wasn't pretty much a horse and a plow so he had just this amazing quality of fruit, and now we get to see it. So as part of your training as a sommelier, and also the knowledge that you gain from that today, you don't just have to learn about like the label on a bottle and what that means, and probably the ability to pronounce French words. You actually had to go back and learn about regions of the world and soil and, and, and history and culture. Um, and all of that is to say that um, that this is relational and that this is a generative kind of thing. And as an Enneagram 4, that would be part of just kind of what you appreciate and how you see the world. But it's not just about the end product of here's a glass and it smells and tastes really good and it's really expensive. But it's about this whole uh, value and richness to what is there. Mm-hmm. 100%. I, I feel like it's it's... Sometimes this is disheartening to people, but I would say that about like 15% of the reason you appreciate a bottle is because of how it tastes. (laughs) The taste of it itself really isn't what does it. It's so many other things with it. It's the status symbol it is for us. It's the memory of the last time you had wine like that. It's the people who made it, the story you heard about it, the food you ate with it, the people you shared it with. And I think that kind of giving people that context or trying to add that to it is just how you get the most fun out of it. So back to John chapter 15, if we just took those verses uh, and the first three words of I am the vine, all of what you just said uh, is is uh, explicitly involved in that, that there is story of God as the vine, what that means, what that looks like, who he is, the relationships, uh, the, the, the vision for generativity, um, continue just to unpack uh, what moving forward and and developing as a wine guy sommelier now being involved in the industry from another part what that professional growth and development looked like it really looked like uh, a lot of hours studying a lot of hours just kind of trying to figure out these regions and figure out these places and then figure out what's important with them what I do now is really my expertise or my kind of help in it is trying to figure out what's available that meets my standards and meets the standards of the consumer and what's really in the market right now that people want. We have a huge trend towards natural wine and natural everything. And so figuring out which one of those are good or which ones are bad, which ones are cool, when they'll sell, because the wines we work with are just very uh, limited usually and not always available year round and so you have to always have a plan about how you're going to do what's next and then who's going to want it and we always say you have to have someone in mind whenever you buy a bottle like when we're buying cases or whatever to who we're going to sell it to so I kind of help people build those systems and help buyers know kind of how to or hopefully will help buyers know how to make those decisions better. 
When you talk about natural wine, does that mean like no sulfites and things like that? Or does it also go back to a plow and a horse and more traditional farming? So natural wine is uh, something I'm really into and also very weary of. We're kind of trying to write the story as it's being written. Uh, winemakers are experimenting with this no additive wine. Exactly. With they, There's 262 legal chemicals you can add to wine. And Wow. Yeah. And there's no ingredient list on bottles. So it's all trust. Uh, and so if you're at a grocery store and nobody thought about that bottle, it's it's hard to know what's in it. And so this natural wine is kind of the pendulum swing where they're saying, well, guess what? We're putting nothing in it. And so the problem with that is that wine really, really wants to turn to vinegar. And this amazing mentor of mine, uh, Michael Mondavi, once said, like, man makes wine, nature makes vinegar. And so... Wow, that's I love that. Now, let me just back up. Mondavi, uh, that's a famous name. I'm, I'm a sober alcoholic for 20-some years, so I've, I'm kind of out of practice, if you will. But I, but I know enough. Is that from the Mondavi family? It, he is, yeah. Uh, his uh, father was, or grandfather was really the reason we have wine in Napa, or the reason people know about it. And he's, I got lucky to, to meet him and be able to spend some time with him a couple times because my actual uh, mentor, the owner of the shop I work at, he used to work for uh, Mr. Mondavi directly. I love how you call him Mr. Mondavi. There's, you know, I'm 55, and there's certain people in my life that I, I just don't call them by their first name, you know, because yeah. they, they have that respect. Again, um, man makes wine, nature makes vinegar. So we can think God and then man made in God's image that there's an intentionality, there's a craft, there's an apprenticeship, there is a... Um, just a, a fruit of our lives that results in wine and without that intentionality and a process of, of, of transformation and, and generating love, as we were talking about earlier, vinegar, which has a use, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not to drink, really. Yeah. Except in, now I guess, what, um, uh, kombucha and thing, <laughs> yeah, thing, right, things like true. that. We've definitely gotten a little bit more acidic. Uh, yeah, it's amazing to me that it, it happens ever, that, we, can, that we, we capture a vintage, we capture a whole year of what's gone in the vine and what's happened, and you're provided with this beautiful grape, and it's, the adage the always is, you, you can't make good wine from bad grapes, it's just the grapes are always first, wine's made in the vineyard, it's not made in the winery. And say that again, say that again, that sounds like a keeper, that you can't make good wine from bad grapes. You can't make great wine from bad grapes, you can make palatable wine from bad grapes, but... It really is like the truth about the vineyard and where it is and who works it and how it's treated is will always, always be the miles ahead separator of good or bad wine. So let's talk for a minute about what are good grapes, what are bad grapes. Yeah, so uh, a grape can kind of get to two levels of uh, maturity, let's say. So there's ripeness, which is a level of sugar. So it's just sugar turns into alcohol. So we need to get enough sugar to make this an alcoholic beverage. Uh, and so that just comes from sun and heat. And that's pretty indiscriminate. You just need to get to a certain level there where you want it to be. But then there's another maturity in the grape, which we call like a phenolic ripeness, which is just kind of a geeky way of saying like flavor. Is the flavor ripe yet? Because grapes, grapes aren't good when they're not ripe. But if they get ripe too fast, they don't really taste like anything. Ah, that's interesting. If they get ripe too ripe, they turn into like raisins, they taste the same. So you can have wine from all over the world, but it's not that different if you're not hitting that moment correctly. 
And so those grapes also, they're, they're a huge reflection of their, the climate in that area. So if it's foggy in the morning and then blows off for three hours and you get warm, but then it's cold at night, your grapes will take a long time to ripen. So they'll have a lot of complexity. So it goes without saying, but I mean, there's so many variables that go into this. Yeah. It's not just about you plant a grape seed, presumably. Uh, I was, had to think for a minute, how do you, <laughs> how do you get a grape? Uh-huh. Uh, you put a grape in the ground, but you plant those and the vine grows. And it's not just that hopefully you get good grapes at the end of the season, show up and harvest them, but I mean, fog. And how do, does the Mondavi family even control that? Yeah, so that's the the funnest part about wine is like so you when you first you have to choose your site correctly. So really, we're we're only messing with uh, between the thirtieth and forty fifth parallel, or fiftieth, fifty fifth, I think. And so we don't. There's no real areas outside of that that are even on the table. And then inside of that, you kind of you find your 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 place. Some of the greatest winemakers in California and Oregon, they didn't have soil samples. They didn't have places to look so they literally were like i was standing on this hill and it felt like the place in france where they grow these grapes so what's the 55th parallel um that's a horizontal line marking mm-hmm. a certain kind of climate yeah so we're pretty much just think like a, a quarter of the world we can't be inside of tropic of cancer or tropic of capricorn and then we've got about 25 latitudinal degrees so really the limit being like uh think seattle or really the southern tip of England that's the northern limit and then northern Morocco and Africa is is pushing it but so non-tropical mm-hmm. anything tropical you're going to get coffee beans and kiwi and passion fruit and maybe an occasional durian for those who have who have dared into that fruit <laughs> that's some rough stuff by the way durian if you have never seen one I've, I've been in the United Arab Emirates with Josh and uh, durian is the worst smelling fruit and if you're a tourist where they grow them people will take you cut one open it's ugly on the outside right and then you cut it open and people say it's delicious but it, it smells so bad that you'll want to run away from it all right that was a little a little fruit commercial I love it. but we have that history together uh, anyway I never knew that, that that there's only this horizontal across the world, which makes it even more rare. Yeah, very rare. And crazy to think, though, like uh, these places that we have deemed as the best or as the greatest, it's not by me or my compatriots. It's uh, these these vineyards that are in Europe and were in the best spots have, have been there since the year 700. So they've been written about by Pliny the Elder and by everyone as long as there's been writing on kind of categorizing quality of booze it's it's these places have been been kind of set in stone and they they know it so we're really trying to replicate europe everywhere else and i should give a little tagline for lebanon they've been making wine longer than anybody else and well i was just going to say you've lived you've lived in a, a one country and you've traveled extensively in the middle east um and so jesus in john 15 is speaking from an israel context what what are the implications of of wine and vines in Israel and the Middle East, because it's very close to Lebanon, obviously. Yeah, and so really interesting because we have a, an unfortunate uh, kind of holes in history for Israel and their winemaking. They've had a lot of different circumstances that make it hard to keep records uh, so easily. And so the history there, though, was uh, way more than it is now. It, uh, there was much more vines and much more kind of separated plots and kind of many people would have a group of vineyards that they would help out with and then a local co-op would kind of make all the wine usually. 
maybe somebody would be a little adventurous and make their own at home. But the vines there would be really cool. We see, we have some pictures left of a couple hundred, three hundred year old vines that obviously weren't there during this passage, but are a great reflection of what they might have looked like. And it's just think kind of six inch wide trunks that are just torn to shreds. Looks like someone's been wringing out a rag of wood and then each year there'll just be one stick on top of this massive vine that's just torn to pieces and that's those sticks they choose each year which one will fruit and which one will not wow so back to john 15 1 i am the vine just those three words you just talked about the size of a vine and through another person that just i had a five-minute conversation with about grapevines that are used for wine and obviously there's grapevines that are used for raisins and for all kinds of other things but we're not talking about like a thin piece of rope and then little branches come off of that. How big do the vines get? How substantial are they? So it's, uh, there's some DNA material that goes bigger or smaller, but on the big side in the right climate, especially in Southern California, they will, these vines can get up to like four five, six feet tall and can be six inches on like a trunk and then down to like eight inches around the base. That's amazing. It's really wild. And if those are still around, they're, they're incredibly special because they've been around usually for 100 years. That was my next question, is what's the, the lifespan of a vine? So this is, is a, it's a cool kind of measure of a vineyard, too. If, if your vineyard is actually an ecosystem that supports the vine without intervention from humans, so we're not pesticides, herbicides, fertilizer, we don't know. We've, nev- we've seen vines get up to 200 years old. If you're not in the right ecosystem and you have to force the vine to work there, we call it by any means farming, <laughs> you're willing to spray whatever you need, the vine will die in under 30 years, almost always. It just can't survive. So what are the conditions? You've touched a little bit on this because this verse is, I am the vine, you are the branches, and then anyone who doesn't bear fruit, there's an implication there that vines would not bear fruit. Talk about that. Like, what what are, what are the conditions for the the vines there? It bears fruit or not? Jump into that. Yeah. So, uh, I was really interesting to think about too, because in modern times we have a lot of different ways to prune. But a very common way that I think would be referenced here is the idea of these two canes. And so you make two canes, and you have kind of two options. And what happens is each year one cane will uh, provide fruit. And the other will become wood. And so that wood is what gives you stability, though, because the canes, they harden as they grow. And so the one that doesn't bear fruit will give you that structure and it'll help you keep the vine where you need it and give you the the placements to kind of because a vine is a crazy thing where you can cut a piece and it'll grow a node and it'll grow another branch right there almost wherever. And so you decide based on those canes kind of which one you want to fruit and which one you want to be for next year. And so the one that fruits will be cut away uh, in the, at the end of the year, and then the other one will become that. So in, let's call it real life winemaking and vine tending, um, that the fruitful vine and shoots are cut off. Mm-hmm. But it's not because they've been bad, but precisely because they've been good. Mm-hmm. And by cutting it, then it allows it to continue to be fruitful. Exactly. Basically taking a year off while the wood one then sprouts, generates, and that process repeats itself. Uh Uh-huh, completely. And 
it's interesting to me too in this that as we talk about those like uh, shoots and vines, the ones that are going up and holding a big part when you're pruning a vineyard is you have to find the right amount of canes or shoots to get uh, leaves because if you don't have enough leaves, you cannot produce berries because you're not going to make it. So Because of the heat in the sun? Yeah, because of the sun as well. You just need, uh, I'm blanking on the word right now, photosynthesis to occur, to uh, ripen the grapes. And so the you have to have some for fruit and some for just growing vegetative growth. By the way, and people who have listened to this podcast for a long time know that I'm random and that I have ADD, but as soon as you said photosynthesis, I went back to sixth grade science class, and I just want to share with everybody that I remember the chemical name for sugar, C6H12O6. Did you used to tell that to women? No, but I, oh. I had a friend. My young life leader had a dog named Sugar, and I used to call it C6H12O6. <laughs> That's awesome. But photosynthesis, you got I the love word. It. Yeah. That's so great. My dad, he's famous for calling my mom the chemical formula for sugar. That is so great. <laughs> um, I, I just have this picture in my head. It sounds like with the, the cane that has the shoots and the, the fruit of the grape, and then the one that you said you use it for wood, it seems parallel to, and I'm not a farmer, the idea of letting a field sit fallow and that you know you grow one year here and then after a certain amount of time you don't grow anything for the soil to replenish. Is that the idea with using it for wood? Definitely. That's that's a huge part of it. Uh, also for letting that wood grow allows that to be a protected spur. So inside, if, if it freezes, there's usually kind of a, a sheath almost on the outside that will keep the growth going. But if it gets too cold and it's a new vine, it doesn't really have that sheath. So the protection it gains in the year of turning into wood and not having to produce fruit is, is very helpful too. So keep going just about, I cut you off with the, with the wood and the, the sprouts from there, just about the creating this fruit. Yeah. So, uh, you kind of, one of the most important decisions you do in the vineyard is you choose kind of which canes you want to fruit. And then you have to keep that fruiting zone, uh, clear because it needs to have not too many leaves so that airflow can get in because if there's no airflow and when it rains, it'll all those grapes will get moldy inside and we don't want that. And so the keeping that zone clear of leaves is very important as well as keeping enough so that they're shaded because grapes will burn and it's, it's not tasty when they, they get burned. So you need to have leaves so they're not burned. You need to make sure that the leaves are not too much. Mm-hmm. Otherwise they'll go moldy. I mean, just very intricate conditions. Very much so. And when you make these decisions, you're, you're cutting into the vine to, to make these canes or to remove canes from last year. And so what happens is those, those turn into buds, but they're a wound on the vine. So the vine is always susceptible to disease as you're pruning it, as you're making these kind of decisions. It's, it's a scary time, but also you're setting up your whole year. Say, what is the wound on the vine? Uh, so when you come into that cane from last year, you have to cut it off. And then also around there, there will be a bunch of buds because the vine wants to grow hundreds of canes. It wants to climb a tree. It wants to, to go as far as it can. But we really want it to be in that one spot. So we have to cut everything back. And so on that, on each vine, it might be six. It might be four. But you really only want to keep two of those buds. So you just have these little kind of 
notches on the edge of the vine and you leave them or cut them and those will turn into your your branches and you only want to keep that couple so that it will be more fruitful exactly fascinating less is more Mm -hmm. which is a a huge uh theme both in my book surfing for god and the spiritual direction work that i do that less is more and i think that's one of the big messages of john 15 that it's it's not about heroic striving it's not trying to be a super christian but this this uh analogy of vine and branch it's very organic mm-hmm. no pun intended but organic meaning that it happens organically naturally effortlessly if there's a tending to and if there's a certain kind of I hear all of what you're talking about, and there's a kind of intimate knowledge that I imagine a winemaker. But what's the person that tends the vines called? Yeah, so we call them uh, viticulturists. Viticulturists. There's an intimate knowledge, uh, like a person who's an animal trainer, where you can't just know about tigers. You have to know about that particular tiger. Yeah, exactly. And, and so these folks know about the soil on that spot and the sun conditions and all of those things that you talked about. Um this organic nature. Talk about that, that there's all this intimate knowledge and yet there's something that's organic and actually outside of the control as well. Yeah, it's really fun. So any, and I have to, I have to make a little caveat that there's a massive, most wine is not made with this care. Most wine is, is for grocery stores and it's, it's a different subject, but speaking just to any wine that where people care and it's, these wines come from people with this intimate knowledge and they consistently even call pruning vines as meditation because they're like you think about so many things when you're there so the year you're going to have you're thinking about okay how many bunches of grapes do i want to put on this one vine will it will it be too many for this year or be too little and then as you do it and as you go through it there's really no no match for experience the kind of guys who teach viticulture in California or in really expensive places are just dudes who have done it forever because they've seen every vine, they've seen every problem and they have to have a lot of trust and a lot of like, they always talk about like, you can't force nature into anything. It's, it's going to do what it wants to do. And we're trying to create almost like a a big monoculture here. And that's, nature's going to try to fight that always. And so how do you how do you make that work? How do you work with nature but not against it? Uh, there's a really famous uh, Austrian guy who got really famous in Germany for calling for inventing biodynamic farming, and he has a lot of kooky principles. But uh, he believed that through the practice you would learn. He said you have to be in the vineyard, you have to work with your vines, and you have to do it because then you'll be able to make the decisions because just learning about it or just trying stuff like or just sending someone else doesn't help you you have to have the connection to the vine and see it and feel it because it's it's not hard to get a great a vine to grow grapes it's really hard to get it to grow great grapes though wow that's that's so amazing back to john 15 1 i am the vine that is a that's a metaphor and that's an image but even if we were to look at john 1 through 14 jesus revealed himself in so many other ways so i i I think of that german guy um creating something new trying to be even um more not just fruitful but unique and individualized in what he's doing that jesus is not just a vine in the metaphor but he's the the incarnate one that's out in the field, that's tending, that's intentional, that is working toward that exquisite 
witness. And I think that's one thing that I've thought about this passage. We often teach about or think about fruitfulness in terms of all or nothing, black and white. So, you know, it's a catastrophic uh, harvest. There's no grapes on the vine or boom, there's a lot of grapes. And it seems to me that that Jesus is speaking consistent with all of the other gospels, that there's a quality to the grape, not just you better become a grape, but there's an endpoint where you are to be, uh, you could have all this terminology, a wonderful fragrance, taste, bouquet, uh, legs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've just exhausted my complete vocabulary, <laughs> but jump in. I uh, to make like the best wine possible. It's I think to me like there's a there's a piece of it just being delicious and all this, but there's also just a, a truth to place, an image of that year in a, a time trapped in a bottle. You when you pop a cork that says 1969, like you're smelling air and grapes from 1969. Like you consume that year. I never thought about weird. that. That is so wild. It's not just that. Oh, this tastes something like 1969 because it's fermented so long or it's been in the bottle, but you're literally tasting and taking in the air and the water and everything from that time and, and all that was happening in that moment. I love it. It's the, the Greeks used to talk about wine in that way of you actually ingest the, the beauty of the wine. You, you, you gain that from it. The, the quality of it is something that you receive. And I think if you think hard enough, and pay enough money for the wine, you kind of have to believe that, and it works out great. So let's wrap up with this, uh, and I'm so thankful for for all of this wisdom, and I'm just going to trust that people will listen to this and probably have one of multiple reactions, one of which will be wine is, is not allowed in the Bible, and in, in uh, John 2, when Jesus turned water into wine, it was water into grape juice. And to those people, I say, God bless you, because that's that's the culture that some people grew up in. And we talked a lot before this podcast about culture and honoring people's traditions. And some will say, wow, I never knew. I had no idea. Some may, may go become sommeliers or, you know, develop a wine hobby. And hopefully that's stirred something in you. But I'll read this passage again. I just have a final thought. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So there's this cutting off, and there's the pruning, and this Greek word, aero, which is to lift up and can potentially be used as cutting off, that, that maybe a good paraphrase of this verse is, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener, and he cuts off or prunes anything in our lives that stands in the way of us becoming really, really fine wine. I mean, isn't that a picture of that if there's a God, what kind of God is worth believing in? And the Christian God, uh, at least how I interpret the scriptures, is that the Christian God looks like Jesus, and Jesus looks like God. And Jesus is not going to go around, hey, you didn't have your quiet time today, or you believed the wrong thing about this passage, so I'm going to cut you off. But instead, it's this vision. It's this long term. It's an aesthetic. It's a generative it's a loving sense of, I am going to work in your life with uh, deep knowledge, with intimate knowledge, with care, with this endpoint of creating something amazing so that when the cork of your life pops, that uh, something flows, that, that people are going to go, wow. And that's a whole different approach that as we had this conversation today, I knew that 
just having the conversation would do something inside of me. And so that's my vision. And I think that ought to become a kind of lens that when we look through Scripture, if our interpretation of a passage is not leading us to that kind of God that always has that endpoint of generativity and fruitfulness that's about a cup overflowing to be able to nourish others and touch the deep thirsts of others' hearts, uh, then we need to reevaluate whether we're looking at the God that looks like Jesus. So, Josh, man, thank you. We joked about starting a podcast, just about some of the stuff we banter around, but I really appreciate you coming in today. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. I love talking about wine. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.